Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. If you didn't bring a Bible, you're welcome to use one of the black hardback Bibles under one of the seats in front of you. Someone will help you get it and pass it to you. If you don't own a Bible, I would ask you to take that with you and keep it as a gift from Life Point Church. We would love for you to keep that and to read it. There's an introduction note in the front cover of it, and we'd love for you to read that as well. This morning as we celebrate Easter, I want us to look at John's account of Easter in chapter 20 where he takes us to the tomb on resurrection morning. Easter is a potent holiday for sure. It is the day in history that illumines reality and eternity all at once. You know, some have argued that the resurrection cannot be believed. This is a a myth that is perpetrated and propagated among many, and and they usually use science uh, to try and validate their perspective. But I want to use science this morning, Uh, a rather well-noted scientist. He's a professor of nuclear science at MIT. His name is Ian Hutchison, and he would disagree. Listen to this quote about the resurrection. He says, still the fact that the resurrection was impossible in the normal course of events was as obvious in the first century as it is for us today. Indeed, he goes on, that is why it is seen as a great demonstration of God's power. Science offers natural explanations of natural events. It has no power or need to assert that only natural events happen. Friends, the resurrection is the supernatural. New life in Christ is the supernatural coming into the natural. And we should never forget that. That reminds us this morning why it is that the resurrection matters for us. Why it is that the resurrection matters. You see, this morning, John brings us to the tomb and he records the resurrection as an historical fact, a truth that happened. And so I would argue this morning and I would begin with the presupposition of this historical moment and I want to move to why it is that the resurrection would matter for anyone. Can it not just be a day in the past with which we celebrate? But the reason it matters is because it is the most unnatural supernatural event that has ever occurred and will ever occur in all eternity. There's nothing like it. And Jesus Christ rose on the third day. And when he did, he demonstrated that he holds the power, not just of life, but over death. And in that moment, he addresses and resolves the single issue that humanity still lives perplexed by and impotent to address today. John chapter 20, I want us to read the first 10 verses and kind of get a setting at that resurrection tomb as we begin. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early 
while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out and the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Mary Magdalene was the first at the tomb. And she sees that the stone is rolled away and, and, and then she runs to get Peter and the other disciples. And Peter and John bolt out of the house and they run together. And John makes sure that we understand he got there first. I love that, but I'll come back to it in a moment. Verses 8 and 9 are very telling for us. Here we have two men that spent the last three plus years of their life following the Lord Jesus as he walked on the face of the earth. They heard everything that he said and all that he taught. They saw all the miracles that he had done in every way. But it's at this moment when they come to the tomb that something occurs that has not occurred before now. And here's what verses 8 and 9 record. He saw... And believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Friends, the resurrection and this seeing the Christ who was raised from the dead is the purpose and the power of God for life. And that's why we're here this morning. The resurrection is the historical event that substantiates and illuminates everything else with this one truth. Jesus is Lord. And that's what we want to declare to you today. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the power of God over death, over hell, and over the grave. They do not stand a chance. They are defeated in every way. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the crushing blow of victory over Satan and over sin. He is a defeated foe. He cannot stand against the resurrected Lord. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the distinctive proof of Christianity against all other religious ideologies and religious philosophies and religious paradigms. For the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the crowning victory of Jesus that substantiates his coronation as Lord of all creation. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the source of the eternal inheritance and hope for the Christian life. Friends, what I want you to walk away with today is not only to know but to believe this, that Jesus gives new life to all who believe in him. And friends, I want you to know before we dive in this morning, that if you came in not believing, you don't have to leave today the same way. 
You can be new. You can be alive. You can be raised from the dead in your own life because of believing in Jesus. That's the purpose of the resurrection and the point of why we worship. And so with that in mind, I want to address another question that I think is most important when we think about the resurrection and that we see in this passage in John 20. What kind of person does Jesus save? What kind of person is it that he bestows the power of his resurrection and life upon? I want us to see four witnesses from this passage of Scripture this morning that we've already seen three of. I want to begin, though, with Peter. The first of the two that got to the tomb and actually went in. Let's talk about these witnesses and let's consider the testimonies that they bear for us. For if we didn't begin with Peter, I feel like he would be disappointed in us, you know. And I think John himself would expect that we would start with Peter. Just the way that it seems they lived. Originally, Peter's name was Simon or Simeon. He was a Jew, and his father's name was Jonah, and we know that from the Scriptures he was married. He originally followed John the Baptist when he came preaching a message of repentance, but his brother Andrew was one of the first to be called to follow Jesus, and he came and found Simon, and he told him, you need to come follow Jesus. He's the one that John the Baptist is telling us about. Now consider for a moment, before we really look deeper into his life, who is it that Peter became because he believed in Jesus? He was one of the first disciples that was ever called by Jesus to follow him. And Peter's name is the one that stands first in all of the recorded lists of the disciples in the New Testament. He was known as Peter because Jesus gave him this name. Matthew records that Jesus asked him if he believed in him. And Peter said, yes, I do. I believe that you are Lord. And Jesus said, your name is Peter, which is Petra, which means stone. And he said, based upon Petra, this stone or this single confession that Jesus is Lord, I will build my church. So in other words, he's saying one person confesses Jesus is Lord. That's what brings new life to believe in me. But upon the confession, the bedrock that Jesus is Lord, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We know that Peter was one of the three closest To Jesus. We see he and James and John in that inner circle. He served as the leader of the apostles and as the spokesman as well for the disciples. But Peter didn't start the way he ended, friends. And that's the testimony that him as a witness bears to the resurrection power today. Peter was impulsive and he was quick spoken. Peter was a Galilean. And a Galilean evidently was known by this. Listen to what one historian says about people from Galilee. Those people, right? And I quote, They held a marked character, a reputation for independence and energy, which often ran into turbulence. You smell the way they sugarcoated that, right? Here's what he meant to say. They were belligerent, they were brash, and they were offensive. And Peter said, thank you. I mean, that's who he was. That's who he was. He spoke with a distinct dialect and pronunciation. And the people of Judea thought of the Galileans because of the way they talked in a certain way, typically at the end of their nose. 
as they looked down it at them. But that gives us insight why it was that later when he preached on the day of Pentecost and when he argued in front of the leaders, that they saw them as uneducated, untrained men, but their message was overwhelmingly powerful. You see, even following Jesus, Peter was known for what? His wrongful boasts and his denying Jesus three times. What a way to go into the record books, right? What are you known for? Well, Jesus called me Satan one time. That's not a nickname anybody wants to really haul around, right? And then there was that little incident right before the rooster crowed where... um, Not once, not twice, but three strikes and you're out. I denied the Lord before the rooster crowed. And yet, friends, yet, he's also the one that was chosen by God to preach at Pentecost when the church was established. You see, Peter's life is a powerful testimony of the mercy and of the grace of God. That does not give us what we've earned and what we deserve, but grants to us what God bestows upon us because he loves us. He gave God every opportunity to dismiss him, but God instead chose to redeem him. And what a beautiful picture of redemption his life is. When many others walked away from following Jesus because it was too hard, John records in chapter 6, Peter looked at Jesus and with the innocence of a child, he said, Lord, We've left absolutely everything to follow you. Where else would we go? Who who else could we follow? This is the way that Jesus grabbed hold of Peter's heart. Peter left a successful fishing business to follow Jesus. His testimony is simply this. It's one of absolute surrender. It is one of absolving all other interests and investments that interfered with his call to follow Jesus. You see, we know his life was not easy for following Jesus. For history goes on to tell us that before Peter himself died as a martyr for the sake of Christ, tradition records that he was present when his wife died as a martyr for the same purpose. Peter watched his Lord be crucified. He watched his wife be martyred for that Lord. And he too was killed because of the Lord Jesus Christ. But his testimony remains for us today as a faithful witness to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Peter tells us, here's the kind of people that Jesus saves. Jesus is worth giving up everything to believe and to follow him. Because Jesus saves people from the deception of their pride. Jesus saves people from the deception and destruction of their self-trust and their personal success. Jesus saves people from the crushing disappointment that these things bring when we put all of our hope in all of our ability in this world. Peter was a self-made man who tells us that Jesus is better as a remaker of men when we believe and surrender to him. Jesus saves the self-made from their success to bring real life, meaning, and satisfaction when we believe in him, repent, repent, 
and follow him as Lord. That's the kind of person that Jesus saves. And that's our first witness at the empty tomb today. The second witness we see today is John, the author of the book. And as the author, we need to understand that his response at the tomb should be characterized by the whole message of the book. You see, John enjoyed a deep, rich, personal experience of walking with Jesus. And John was known as the beloved, likely Jesus' most intimate friend while he walked on the face of the earth. And that's why we need to understand how John influenced or how John related to Jesus to understand the influence that it held in the way he writes. Otherwise, we might just imagine that John's bragging about his relationship with the Lord in such a way that it might entitle him to something that no one else could have. Because he says this, when he identifies the other disciple that ran with Peter, he doesn't use his name, but rather he says the disciple that Jesus loved. And then he also says what? That actually he was the one that got to the tomb first. Right? I mean, if we don't understand what John is saying here, we might believe that he's inferring something that, in fact, I don't believe he was inferring at all. You see, John's life was not one of privilege and sugar-coated existence. Rather, John began as a son of thunder, the brother of James, the sons of Zebedee. These boys had a reputation And not just a reputation around those who knew him, but those who were anywhere near him. His family was likely very affluent. But John was not beloved because he earned Jesus' love. He proved himself worthy or Jesus thought he might could get something from him that he didn't already have. As a matter of fact, it tells us that John had an uncontrolled temper that often showed itself. To the extent that that's the way these boys were characterized. They left a wake of destruction everywhere they went. As a matter of fact, scholars throughout history who have studied the life of John, the author of the gospel, say that his reputation was so severe that many of them claim it would be absolutely impossible for him to write the gospel of John. In other words, they refute The fact that he wrote the gospel because they don't believe someone who had such a reputation for anger and brashness and the ability to do what he was known for doing could write such a letter that was so filled and dripping with the love that the gospel of John tells us of God. That these two are incompatible. They just could never happen. That, that such a theme of love could not have the understanding and could not come through the words from somebody who was ruled with such wrath. You see, John was known as a bully. He was ruled by his pride. He raged against those that he viewed as weaker or less valuable to him for whatever reason or that were just simply unknown to him. There's a very real sense in which John, out of his wrath and anger, enjoyed picking on people that he saw as weaker just for the pleasure of picking on them. That's the kind of man that we're dealing with here. And here's John's testimony as a witness today. Jesus radically changes those who believe in him to receive his love. That's powerful. Jesus saves those who are imprisoned to their inner self. 
He saves those who are held captive by their emotions. Who are held captive by their own internal anger. By their insecurities and by their fears. Those who are ruled by pride and anger. And live by the intimidation. See, Jesus sets us free from all the brokenness of life that we're buried under. And he wants everyone to know Jesus and to experience the same love that radically changed his life. John points out that he outran Peter to the tomb I mentioned a while ago. I love that. It's kind of a sanctified smack talk is the way I like to think of it, you know. It's a little fun that he's having, but it's really not that at all, friends. What he's doing is not bragging, but he's demonstrating at the conclusion of his gospel account how he feels about this Lord who has radically saved his life. It tells us that he arrived at the tomb first, but he stopped at the door. He could only look in. He couldn't go in. Why? Because it was the threshold of the most incredible power of love that he'd ever experienced and he stopped at the door of the tomb just to take it in it was just one of those moments that just the sweet precious cool breeze blew over his life as he remembered this one who had saved him and and as he stood in the potential for what had just taken place and he just began to let the love of God overflow and fill his heart purging all of that old life and bringing all of the new that only he could bring he was taking it all in listen friends John tells us Jesus doesn't write off flawed people. Jesus doesn't measure us up by our downfalls. He loves us just as we are. We are not hopelessly condemned to be in prison forever when our weaknesses and our sin overrun and outweigh our strengths and our goodnesses. Jesus loves the hardest heart so that they too can experience and become the beloved of God. What a powerful testimony John as our second witness tells us. That brings us to our third witness today at the empty tomb. It's a lady by the name of Mary Magdalene. Will you go with me to verse 11 of John 20? And let's read a few more verses together. Remember she was first there but she didn't go in. She ran back and got the other disciples and then returned behind them. Verse 11 says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said, Mary. And she turned around and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, because her eyes were opened to whom it was she spoke. Mary's at the tomb by herself because Peter and John had gone back home. And when asked why she's crying, she tells them, because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. So Jesus appears, though not recognized by Mary at first, and begins a conversation with her and then reveals to her who he is. 
and her life is overjoyed. It's interesting when the two angels ask, why are you weeping? She said, because they've taken away my Lord. You see, Mary was a woman who knew what it meant to be ruled in her life. Scripture records that she'd been healed by having seven demons cast out from her. We don't know a whole lot about Mary Magdalene, but we do know that she was from a city of a very poor reputation, and very often the people who came from those kinds of cities held the very reputation of their cities because they lived fully immersed in the culture in which they lived. Ancient historians have attributed the very downfall of the city that she was from to the extent of licentiousness in which it had gone. And when you consider her hometown, when you consider the afflictions we know that she was healed from, it was believed, it is believed, that Mary Magdalene was likely bound up very deeply in all kinds and forms of sexual immorality. She was a woman who lived in search for herself. She wanted to be loved, but she didn't know how to get the love she most desired. She thought her actions might bring the love that she desired. If she gave herself away, if she engulfed herself in these kinds of things, maybe she would find somewhere how it would happen upon her. But instead, she found that it only continued to destroy her and further enslave her as one after the other after the other used her, abused her, and left her. Mary's testimony, friends, is this. Jesus saves people who are enslaved to the deepest lifestyles of sin. There is no practice, no habit, no pattern to which the love of God does not come to you and reach you to save and redeem you. Here's the beautiful thing about Mary Magdalene. She is present at every major gospel moment in the Bible. This is significant when you consider that she was a woman in the first century. And a woman in the first century was not recognized as a valid witness of testimony. And yet God chose Mary Magdalene to be the one who is at every major gospel moment. And he would use her to be a significant witness historically, even opposing the cultural norms that were being imposed upon her. She was at the cross when Jesus died, when all of the others had left. She was the one who prepared his body for burial. She was the one who said, you just tell me where you've taken his body. I prepared it once, I'll prepare it again if that's what I need to do. And she was the first at the empty tomb Not because she was on some great scientific discovery, but she had found the one who gave her a love that didn't destroy her or deceive her, but overwhelmed her with all that she had looked for. And that love had brought her on that morning to the tomb. She knew what it felt like and what it meant to live hopelessly far and separated from God. Yet, yet, 
this new identity that she had received was defined by the love and joy that she so desired. And it never disappointed her. And she had found, yea, even her new Lord, the Jesus. No one is too far, friends, for the reach of God's love to come and to save And Jesus is Lord. He is worthy of our deepest devotion. And he is worthy and gives the greatest of joy. Hear me, friends. This is what Mary tells us. Jesus loves people hopelessly trapped and enslaved in sin's deepest and darkest deceptions. That he might set them free to live with his light and new life. That's the testimony of our third witness, Mary Magdalene. And then let's go to verse 19 as we look at our fourth witness for the morning. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So the doors are locked. They've barricaded. They're not sure what they're going to do. Jesus shows up and immediately says, Peace be with you. And then skip down to verse 24. Thomas was not in that room, and I'll talk to you about that in just a moment. But verse 24 tells us, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put your hand here and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Prince Thomas stands as the fourth witness to us today of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. You see, Thomas was a man whose skepticism wouldn't allow him to believe such a story just because others, even those that were close to him, said it was true. He wasn't present when Jesus first appeared to the disciples, but that wasn't really a surprise. John was, or excuse me, Thomas was never the first one to come around anyway. He had likely separated himself from the group in order to think through the situation on his own. You see, he didn't readily accept things just because others accepted them. He didn't readily just believe things because other people said that it was true. Thomas was his own man. And Thomas had to work through things in his own way. He was a man who was ruled by his thoughts. He wasn't interested in anyone else's thoughts. Thomas demanded that his own doubts, his own fears, his own concerns, and his own unbelief be fully satisfied before he would believe. And all those doubts and his most convincing rationale immediately disappeared when Jesus appeared before him. Thomas' testimony tells us that Jesus saves the harshest critic. Jesus saves the hardest skeptic and the deepest cynic. 
Friends, Jesus loves people. People who are convinced that he's not real. People who are convinced that he never was. And people who are convinced that he couldn't be true. And he loves them to bring them into a personal relationship with him. These four witnesses bear testimony of Jesus. That he saves all kinds of people. He demonstrates how far from God How people who are far from God are brought close by Jesus because Jesus gives new life to all who believe in him. And he saves each and every one the same way by his love. And that's what John appeals to us on in verses 30 and 31. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote for one reason, that you might believe and have eternal life. So that brings us to the last question of the day. When you consider these four witnesses, when you consider their testimonies, And when you consider what kind of person is it that Jesus saves? John says Jesus saves the person who believes in him. Have you believed in Jesus? I'm not asking you if you've got a library of intellectual, factual knowledge about who he is. I'm not asking you if you've had emotional experiences in the past that you point back to when people ask you if you're a Christian. I'm not asking if there's some kind of validation that was true then but doesn't hold any sway over you today. I'm asking you if today you believe in Jesus and know that you have his life because he lives in you have you placed your trust in him in the sacrifice that he made to pay for your sins that he might give you life that he might give you peace with God and friends if the answer to that is no why not believe in him do you have another plan to replace the one issue that remains to baffle all humanity power over death I can tell you this it won't work because there's no replacement for Jesus other faiths other religions other ideologies and other philosophies will offer you alternatives and hear me friends I'm not speaking negatively of them I'm just laying it on the table what they offer you will not provide to you What Jesus has done for you and what he and he alone wants to give to you when you believe. Life, the power of his resurrection over death. That you might live for all eternity with the one who created your soul and knows how to bring the love that you desire, the joy that you seek, the meaning, the purpose, and all the satisfaction that life can hold. The resurrection invites each person to believe in Jesus and receive new life with God. Would you pray with me?